This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to bring you stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and every sphere of American life. We tell you good stories, redeeming stories, uplifting stories, and tough stories, too. And today, we hear from Jeff Katz. He's a radio host in Richmond, Virginia, and he's also a columnist for the Boston Herald. And here he shares his deeply personal story about his teenage daughter, Julia, who has what doctors call global developmental delays and disabilities. And all of that means is that she functions physically and mentally at the level of a toddler. Here's Jeff reading a note that he wrote to his daughter. Dear Julia, I'm writing you this note on March the 7th, 2018. Today is the day that you turn 15 years old. It's an interesting day for me and for mom, but it's another day for you. You're not like other kids, my sweet. You've never made a big deal of your birthday. You've never asked us for any type of a special gift. Not for your birthday, not for Hanukkah, not for Christmas. You've treated each and every day in the same way. Mom will wake you up and you'll have a smile on your face when you see her. She'll play some of your music and you'll smile even more. You may laugh or giggle or squeal, but there will not be any words. You won't complain about having to go to school. You won't be happy to hear that it is a snow day. You won't celebrate the fact that today is 15 years since you were born. Most 15-year-old girls would be thinking about clothing, college, or a car. By 15, many dads have already had to warn their daughters about some dopey boy. But today, you'll watch your favorite episode of Jack's Big Music Show, enjoy your cereal, and be on the lookout for cookies wherever you can find them. Mom and I know that you will be with us as long as we're alive. But we worry about what happens after we're gone. You have two wonderful brothers, and I pray every day that we have raised them well enough to know that they will need to look after you someday. You may be our middle child, but you'll always be the baby. Even as you get older, according to the calendar, as mom told me yesterday, you are timeless. You'll always be my pipsqueak, despite the fact that the years are flying by. No, we're not exploring potential careers or making plans for your wedding. We're still hoping that we'll be able to help you move from diapers to the potty someday. You live today the same way you did when you were about 18 months old. You don't speak, and you only recognize a few words, but oh, the words that you know. Kisses and cookies. No matter how filled up you are, there's always room for a cookie or two. You don't understand when I ask you how your day was but you become laser beam focused when you hear the crinkle of the wrapper on a package of something sweet. No matter how sweet that candy, it's still eclipsed by your genuinely sweet smile. So many people live their lives asking for things, demanding things, accumulating things. Most people never take the time to stop and savor a piece of cake or breathe deeply to appreciate a gentle breeze like you do. I hear people in this world use horrible, insulting language to describe kids like you, and I want to shake them, yell at them. 
Some mock disabled kiddos like you, and I feel like crying. You don't understand their words, but I do. Sometimes I really wish I did not. We never thought you would crawl, let alone walk, but you showed us. Your situation and challenges and disabilities have caused me to question my belief in God on some days and have served to strengthen it on others. You don't speak, but somehow you are able to brighten my days in ways that I never imagined. Without a single solitary word, you've made me a better man and touched countless people. Hearing you cry ties my stomach into knots, but your giggle is truly the happiest sound that I have ever heard. I know you'll never read this, nor would you understand this if I were to read it to you. So let me just say, kisses and cookies, Jules Bagools. I tell you today what I have told you on every March the 7th since 2003. Daddy loves you more than you will ever know. And thank you for that reading, Jeff. You've made me a better man, he wrote. Your giggle is the happiest sound I've ever heard. On Julia's unexpectedly learning how to walk, Jeff told the Boston Herald that, quote, it was one of the proudest days of my life, one of the happiest days of my life. But I also have to tell you, it's a terrifying situation because Julia is like a toddler. She has no real understanding of, oh, the stove is hot, or... I could fall here or trip you there. We're thrilled that she's trying to explore on her own a little bit, and we're terrified at the same time. And this is true for all of us parents, but even more so for Jeff and his bride. Jeff has said that it's tough to realize that he'll never get to embarrass Julia by dancing with her at her wedding. But, quote, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. End quote. Last but not least, he said these words, quote, She's never spoken a word. She's never said a word to anybody. But she's touched more people in her 15 years on this earth than I ever have. Her joy is pure. To me, she's like the face of God. She's the essence of good, and she shares her joy with everybody. And to everyone out there who's in a similar situation, we share these thoughts. Share them to us. Share them with us here at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Jeff Katz's story, his daughter Julia's, here on Our American Stories. It's the stuff on your list. It's the strange little snacks you end up buying instead. 
This is Lee Habib, and we continue our American stories. And there's a reason why Trader Joe's has become one of America's favorite grocery stores. The store draws hordes of shoppers on the strength of its affordable store brand offerings, which rotate often and include everything from coffee and booze to healthy meals, unexpected snacks, incredible cheese, and internationally focused entrees that have helped evolve the American palate. It has legions of devoted fans, and even haters can't help but find something to love within its aisles. Here's Greg Hengler, a real lover, with a story of Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's, the surfy, laid-back grocery store chain with a cult-like following, known for its cheap prices and floral print-clad staff, has been a household name for years. When you break it down to square footage, Trader Joe's is actually selling more than double its competitors like grocery store chain Whole Foods. And when it comes to the traditional, we have everything and more mega grocery store chains, the small Trader Joe's locations do more than simply offer competition. They outwork and outsell these Goliaths of grocery. The question is, how? After all, Trader Joe's focuses on a unique selection of products under their private label rather than a large amount of them. They don't sell the same old things we normally see. No Lay's, no Heinz, no General Mills, etc. And whereas a traditional grocery store stocks upwards of 40,000 units, Trader Joe's runs around a mere 4,000. In order to make this clear, I went to my local Kroger and did some aisle counting and compared it with Trader Joe's scaled-down approach to shopping. Kroger stocks 285 varieties of cookies, Trader Joe's 154, Kroger 144 pasta sauces, TJ's 14, Kroger 75 iced teas, TJ's 9, Kroger stocks 275 cereals, TJ's 39, Kroger 44 olive oils, TJ's 14, and Kroger stocks 40 toothpastes, TJ's just four. So back to the question, how does the little guy Trader Joe's compete at such a high level? Psychologist and Trader Joe's enthusiast Barry Schwartz coined the term the paradox of choice and quite literally wrote the book on it, The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less. Here he is to explain what he means. All of this choice has two effects, two negative effects on people. One effect, paradoxically, is that it produces paralysis rather than liberation. With so many options to choose from, people find it very difficult to choose at all. So that's one effect. The second effect is that even if we manage to overcome the paralysis and make a choice, we end up less satisfied with the result of the choice than we would be if we had fewer options to choose from. And there are several reasons for this. One of them is that with a lot of different salad dressings to choose from, if you buy one and it's not perfect, and you know what salad dressing is, it's easy to imagine that you could have made a different choice that would have been better. And what happens is this imagined alternative induces you to regret the decision you made, 
And this regret subtracts from the satisfaction you get out of the decision you made, even if it was a good decision. I had no particular expectations when they only came in one flavor. When they came in a hundred flavors, one of them should have been perfect. And what I got was good, but it wasn't perfect. Finally, one consequence of buying a bad-fitting pair of jeans when there is only one kind to buy is that when you are dissatisfied and you ask why, who's responsible? The answer is clear. The world is responsible. What could you do? When there are hundreds of different styles of jeans available and you buy one that is disappointing and you ask why, who's responsible? It is equally clear that the answer to the question is you. You could have done better with a hundred different kinds of genes on display. There is no excuse for failure. And so when people make decisions, and even though the results of the decisions are good, they feel disappointed about them, they blame themselves. Clinical depression has exploded in the industrial world in the last generation. I believe a significant, not the only, but a significant contributor to this explosion of depression and also suicide is that people have experiences that are disappointing because their standards are so high, and then when they have to explain these experiences to themselves, they think they're at fault. And so the net result is that we do better at, in general, objectively, and we feel worse. There's no question that some choice is better than none, but it doesn't follow from that that more choice is better than some choice. There's some magical amount, I don't know what it is. I'm pretty confident that we have long since passed the point where options improve our welfare. Trader Joe's understands what Barry is saying. And as Barry has said himself regarding that magical number, I think Trader Joe's is the best example of how the world should be constructed. The man responsible for all of this is the original Joe the guy behind the beloved grocery store chain who founded the company emphasizing quality over quantity. And that quality starts with the more than 41,000 employees known as crew members. After all, the core of any business is customer service, which Trader Joe's more than excels at. Data science professionals have ranked Trader Joe's number one in customer preference for two years running with Costco coming in at number two and Amazon in third. The brand remains simple, with no online store, no loyalty programs, no special card to swipe, and no sales. Here's Trader Joe's Vice President of Marketing Product, Matt Salone, Marketing Director, Tara Miller, and Joe himself discussing the company's origins on the newly launched Trader Joe's podcast. So it's 1958, and Joe Colombe, Joe, he takes over a small chain of convenience stores around the L.A. area. These, these are called pronto markets. The whole idea is fast. It's pronto. It's quick, right? And they're convenience stores before we really even know what convenience stores are. This is before 7-Eleven becomes the thing that it is. These are little tiny corner markets. The kind of place where you could get anything from, say, a pack of gum to some pantyhose to a box of ammunition. I spent 10 years running pronto markets. Towards the end of that, I really did not like the convenience store formula. Joe is the classic entrepreneur. Joe's really good at 
looking for finding and developing opportunities. The demographics were changing in the United States because of the GI Bill of Rights, which was the largest experiment in mass higher education in the history of the human race. And I thought that these people would want something different. The GI Bill of Rights passed in 1944 provided benefits such as grants for school tuition, job training, and hiring privileges for World War II vets. So after realizing that competition from a burgeoning chain called 7-Eleven would likely drive it into the ground, Joe decided to introduce a new concept. The tiki trend was in full swing. So in 1967, Joe opened the first Trader Joe's in Pasadena, California, a play on the name of popular tiki restaurant chain Trader Vic's. That first store is still there in the same spot, but the chain now has over 487 locations nationwide. By 1972, Joe knew that the average American was traveling more and developing tastes for foods that were impossible to find at the average supermarket. So, along with the store's cedar-planked walls and Hawaiian shirt-wearing crew members, he rolled out a new product. Here again is Tara and Joe. The 1972 breakthrough. Not to be confused with the 1972 break-in. That was Washington. This was Los Angeles. Different story. Granola. Not just any granola, though. This was the first private label Trader Joe's product. And after granola, Joe never looked back. You don't have to worry about all of the soft drink salesmen coming in and the bread salesmen coming in and the potato chip people coming in. You're just focused. And that solves so many problems. (laughs) Joe was also a big fan of California wines. And the original Trader Joe's sold literally every California wine that was available, helping put California wines on the map. And what a story, the Trader Joe's story, the paradox of choice, and so much more. We'll learn how Trader Joe's becomes a force nationwide in retailing, and in loyalty, here on Our American Story. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's milk, it's bread, it's the stuff on your list. It's the strange little snacks you end up buying instead. It's booze, it's nuts, it's pills, it's peas, it's the peanut butter made of sunflower seeds. It's a ball of ice cream that's covered with flour. It's the shelves that are empty by the dinner hour. It's the beautiful moms in their yoga clothes. It's our favorite place, it's that store Trader Joe's. And we continue with the story of Trader Joe's here on Our American Stories. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the rest of the story. I think it's fair to say most companies go through CEOs like we might go through a pair of shoes. You know, it's like, oh, the earnings were down this quarter. We need to replace our leadership. The wind is blowing west. We need to change our leadership. Well, it's interesting to think about a business that is a little over 60 years, a little over 50 years as Trader Joe's, 
and having through that entire stretch of time three CEOs. Um, that's weird in the best possible way. And so Joe, the founder, is leading the company for the first 30 years. And he is central casting, dyed-in-the-wool, entrepreneurial spirit. It's the quality of the people which sets Trader Joe's apart. Forget the merchandise, forget all the other stuff. It's the quality of the people in the store. In 1973, a trip to Trader Joe's would have offered you many items that you won't find today, like pantyhose, which was sold until 1978. In 1977, they expanded their private label with fun names like Trader Mings, Trader Giados, and Pilgrim Joe, and introduced the first reusable canvas grocery bag. In 1979, Joe sold Trader Joe's to Theo Albrecht, Albrecht's company, Aldi Nord, still operates Trader Joe's in the U.S. By the late 1980s, the chain had expanded into Northern California. In 1993, the first Arizona location opened. In 1995, brought expansion into the Pacific Northwest. In 96, the first two East Coast locations opened outside Boston. Between 1990 and 2001, the number of store locations quintupled and revenue shot through the roof as they rolled out an average of 10 new items per week. During this time, they also introduced supermarket innovations like putting handles on paper bags. In 2002, they introduced one of their most notorious products, a $1.99 bottle of wine produced by a guy named Charles Shaw, a West Point graduate and it came to be known as Two Buck Chuck. Here's wine expert and wine creator, Charles Shaw himself, being given a blind taste test of Two Buck Chuck. So let's pour it out. See what we got. So the first thing we're going to look for is aroma. A fine wine has actual qualities of the grape, and you can smell the fruitiness of the grape. And frankly, I can smell some fruit in this wine. This is amazing. Okay. I'm going to taste it. First thing I'm going to do is put it under my tongue. And I picked up some decent acidity. It's not bad. It's a little dry. It's got some tannin. And then I'm just going to put it in my mouth and see what I think. I think this is a very satisfying wine. Some consumers make the mistake of always equating quality with price. That was not the case at the 28th Annual International Eastern Wine Competition. With 2,300 wines in the competition, judges awarded a prestigious double gold medal to a $1.99 bottle of California wine, the 2002 Charles Shaw Shiraz. And it would happen again in 2005 at the Cal Expo competition, and then go on to win other awards in Orange County. Trader Joe's has sold 1 billion bottles of Charles Shaw since 2002. Here's Chris Condit, the category manager for wine at Trader Joe's. I'm going to give you the secret to Trader Joe's here. So far, they've all tasted like Tang, but not the good version, if there is one. One thing that we do that sets us apart is we have a tasting panel. There's a lot of wine out there. There really are hundreds of thousands of wines available in the market. 
We carry about 500 in our stores. So we're tasting every day, literally every day. It's got the acid, I mean, it's got the color, the acid. It's a little more savory than fruity. It's pretty good, though. You're going to tell me. It's Russian River. So it'd be Trader Joe's 2016 Russian River Petite Syrah. Everybody had a chance to try it, think about it? Who'd like to see that come in? Excellent. And lastly, and most... The source of the wine for our various private label and control label programs might change over time, but the wines are always going to be great because we get to pick and choose. We don't have to carry every wine. We don't have to always repeat that exact same thing every year. If it's not good, we don't think it's great value, we don't love the wine, we don't buy it. Trader Joe's Frozen Isle is another innovative wonder of the grocery world compared to the Frozen Isle in traditional grocery stores, which is flailing with only 6% of total store sales. Here's Warren Thayer, who runs the trade magazine Frozen and Refrigerated Buyer, explaining the poor numbers in traditional grocery stores. 46% of shoppers on the typical trip when they spend over $100 don't even set foot in the frozen food department. According to Phil Lempert, a food industry analyst, he says this is due to the predictable packaging of the once novelty frozen dinners introduced in the 50s and the frosty barrier of the frozen selection. The red lean cuisine, the green healthy choice. It's sort of like boring. That glass door, it really creates a fence. You don't see those glass doors at Trader Joe's, which has open freezers. The problem with opening that ice-cold door at your traditional supermarket means you've already committed to purchasing something which doesn't lead to much product discovery. Compare that to Trader Joe's low-level open freezers that brings shoppers physically closer to the products. This allows the freedom to check out new products with less effort, more leisurely, and without the blast of cold air and subsequent frosted glass door. It's fun to go through that case to see what you're gonna find. Piggybacking on what Lempert said before about the unattractive appeal from the predictable packaging of traditional brands, Trader Joe's, on the other hand, has its own private label. They buy straight from the supplier, which ultimately cuts cost and leads to cheaper products for the customer. The products themselves are colorful, quirky, and have a consistent branding. Here's brand building expert Denise Liang. Okay, so it's usually um, kind of hand-drawn or it's not looking like it's, um, you know, computer-generated, right? Um, they're usually caricatures, and then there's some descriptive copy. And all of that, I think, helps the person, you know, the shopper kind of see how this product fits into their needs. There's an element of discovery, like finding something, finding a new product you didn't know existed. David Ziegler Vall, the former head of packaging design at Trader Joe's, said that the hand-drawn images on the products evokes elements of trust and a human touch. Also a sense of being locally produced, handcrafted, and small batch. Trader Joe's has cultivated a level of trust that is really hard to manufacture. Trader Joe's found success by anticipating the needs of its customers, in many cases knowing what the customer would want even before they did, and selling it to them at a low price and in a fun atmosphere. Joe, while still alive, is no longer involved with the company, but his legacy 
is set in stone. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler, and I think he's hoping he'll get some free passes at Trader Joe's for this, and who knows? You never know. Um, But my goodness, one billion bottles of two-buck chuck. And by the way, what they've done and how they've mastered the supply chain, the branding, the artwork, it's just a miracle. And it's Trader Joe's near where my sister and my dad live with my sister's husband. And I wander in there always shaking my head that I won't buy anything. And in the end, I always do. Trader Joe's story, a unique retailing story in this country here on Our American Story. our American stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show and there are historical stories and fun stories and your stories and well sometimes we tell some tough stories we do our our eulogies when people have passed and we've done prison stories and this one well it's about the homeless and it's a very serious social crisis in our country and the stories of the homeless mostly go on mostly go ignored or unreported and that is until now. Mark Horvath has experienced the highs and lows of the American dream, from a successful career in television to barely surviving homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. But he found his voice again when he founded Invisible People, a website that chronicles the lives of homeless people around this country. He hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. And today, he's the online voice of his cause, bringing their stories to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is hearing Marissa's story. Marissa and her four children live in the Union Rescue Mission, a largely homeless shelter in the Skid Row area of downtown L.A. Last night, 245 homeless children slept at the Union Rescue Mission and that's just one shelter. Here's Mark. Marissa, we're in Los Angeles. You're in a homeless shelter. Tell me about it. Um, well, the homeless shelter I'm in is pretty nice um, due to the fact that you have your own privacy, you're safe with your kids because you have people around you watching over your safety. Um, they're really helpful. Everybody here is pretty nice. Um, coming from a person who's been homeless before, I, how do I say it? It's more like a blessing finding a place like this because when you've been homeless before, you've either been couch surfing or you've been sleeping on the streets. And then now that I've been homeless for the first time with kids, it. I don't know, I feel blessed because I don't have my kids on the street while I'm homeless. I have a roof over my head and I get to feed them because they give us food to feed them every time. I don't have to worry about whether I have money for food or not. Um, So it's pretty good. It's got to be tough raising kids homeless. It is. I have four. So, (laughs) yeah, it's pretty tough. 
Now, where would you be if it wasn't for Union Rescue Mission? Honestly, I don't know where I would be. Um, at the moment, I feel like if I wasn't at the rescue mission, I probably wouldn't even have my kids with me, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, where were you before? Um, I was couch surfing and in motels back to back. Uh, how long were you doing that? Um, until I ran out of money and my car ended up getting repossessed. So, but how long were you in hotels and couch surfing? About a month. Yeah. Now, you told me that you uh, were raised in foster care. Yes. And you were homeless before. Right. Tell me about that. Um, so, at the age 13, I was going through a lot. Um, my mom would physically abuse me, and then at the age of 13, I found out my stepdad wasn't really my dad. So I had to go through a sexual abuse and I would get raped for a few years until the age of 15 when I found out I had a big sister who lived with her dad. And um, when I found that out, I told her what was going on. The police interfered and then they took me away from my mom and that's how I ended up into foster care. When I got into foster care at the age of 15, um, I started going into different foster homes due to either my foster parents weren't really caring about me, all they wanted was the money, or it's either because I would get into fights at school because of, I had so much going on, like I wouldn't, I wasn't stable. When then in high school, when I became a senior, I ended up going to seven different high schools until one day I had a really good counselor. And um, he, that counselor would always help me with stuff. And he told me one day, um, Maritza, I know you have a lot in you. Like, I know you could do it. You need to stop filling your classes. You need to stop um, ditching from school and all that stuff. I don't know where it clicked that I had to do good. So he helped me get two extra classes in school. So in school, I would go in at 6 in the morning to my first class in high school. And then I'd come out of high school at 4 o'clock from a different class just to make up my credits. And thank God he pushed me because I ended up graduating from high school. Um, when I graduated from high school, I didn't know, but um, I, had, I, w I had found out that I was pregnant with my first son. When I found out I was pregnant with my first son, I told my foster parents at the moment. And unfortunately, they weren't licensed for kids or they would have had me and my son there. So since then, I ended up homeless for the first time. When I was homeless for the first time pregnant, I had nowhere to go. Um, I was couch surfing. I ended up finding this place called Sarah's House and they took me in. Um, when they took me in, once you had the baby, you have to, you have three months to find out where to go or what to do. So I ended up like working and stuff and just trying to get it together. So they gave you 90 days. Yeah. To go from zero to self-sufficiency. Yeah. How do you do that in 90 days? Honestly, I don't even know how I did it. At two weeks after having my baby, I just started working. Yeah, I went back to work and um, I just started like trying to put stuff together. I started renting a room for like 300 until the landlord thought it wasn't enough. So then I had to move out there. So then I went to move in with my son's dad for a little bit. 
Ended up pregnant again. That didn't work out. So yeah. I ended up homeless again. Yeah. Yes, three jobs. I oh, you're working. currently working three jobs? Yes, DoorDash. I work for David and Margaret Family Youth Services in the cafeteria and then the gas station at 76. So currently, right now, you have three jobs? I have, yeah. yeah. Are they put obviously part-time? Yes, yes. So. Still not enough, but it's something. Well, you're hustling. Yeah, I'm trying to. I have a car, so I have to, I have to pay a lot of stuff out for them. Yeah. And that little little voice over there, that was Andy. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Andy, he's always helping people out. If it wasn't for him, I don't know where I would be at. Like seriously. Oh yeah, um, yeah. When I came homeless again this year, um, I had nowhere to go. Like, um, my coworker reached out to me and introduced me to Andy. I called Andy and I told him like. Hey, I'm stuck at a motel. My car got repoed. I have nowhere to go. Like, do you have anywhere I can go? And he was like, yeah, um, that's not a problem. He's like, just tell me where you are. We'll come pick you up. He came. He picked me up in his big truck. And then um, I explained to him, like, I'm not trying to go to wherever we're going by myself. Like, I would like my kids with me. My kids are with their dad, and I don't know how I'm gonna get them. He automatically said, where are your kids at? I told him they're in Lancaster. He's like, don't worry about it. Just give me the address. We'll go pick them up right away. We literally went all the way to Lancaster, pick up the kids. We picked up the boys, and then we were all in his truck. Like, my kids were excited riding in his truck. Um, my son just kept, <laughs> poor Andy, his ear was so tired. My boys were like talking to him nonstop. Um, he got them Jack in the Box because they were hungry. Like they were really, really hungry. And um, they started asking Andy questions like, do you ride bikes? Um, they just- You just rode 400 miles. Just get him. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, they were just talking his ear off. He was conversating with them back. I think I dozed off for a minute. Yeah. I did, right? <laughs> and then I think my own snoring like woke me up and then I woke up <laughs> and then he's like, mommy, did you get enough rest? I said, yes, thank you. And they were still talking. Well, homelessness is so stressful when you finally get in a place where you feel secure, you mm -hmm. sleep. Right. Yeah, you because know, you don't get much sleep when you're stressed. Right. So. Yeah. Well, thanks for adding those stories in. Yeah, huh? Yeah. Now my kids love Andy. What's your future like? Um, honestly, in my future, I just want to see myself in a permanent house, a stable job, and going back to school for my last semester. I have one semester left to get my AA in criminal justice. So I hope that in my future I have accomplished those three things yeah. with my kids. If you had three wishes, what would they be? Mm, just, I would convert into one wish and just basically do the best I can for my kids, provide them what they need for, for the rest of their life. Even if they're old or whatever, just provide them with a place, a stable place, um, money coming in from a job, from my job, and that's pretty much it, the well-being of them. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. You're welcome. And again, that was Mark Horavath, and he was talking to Marissa, and she has four children and lives in Union Rescue Mission, and that's a large homeless shelter.
in the Skid Row section of Los Angeles. And what a voice, and we're going to hear more of these uh, because, my goodness, we should. An abusive mom as a teenager. Next, she's in foster care, and, well, we all know what that can be like. There are some good foster parents, but, boy, there are some bad ones. As she said, they were just in it for the money, the ones she had. And then there were fights, seven different high schools, and what a unique voice. And thanks to Mark Horvath for doing this. Invisible People is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public about homelessness through innovative storytelling, news, and advocacy. For more, search Invisible People on YouTube or go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv. Marissa's story, so many homeless people's story, and Mark Horvath's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and the next story you're about to hear is a good one. And before we get to it, if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to sign up for our newsletter, and in the newsletter we'll send you our five best stories every week, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Share your email address with us and we'll get you that newsletter. And share the link with friends if you like what you hear. In this time of never-ending bickering and loudness and anger, Our show is a rebuttal to all of that. And now it's time for the take of an obscure TV signal hacking incident that took place in the 1980s that's had the city of Chicago on edge ever since. Here's Jesse with the details. Even in a medium that is no stranger to bizarre moments, these were truly bizarre. First hit WGN, its signal was jammed during the news in the middle of the Bears highlights. The incidents are now under investigation by the FCC and the FBI. Last night, someone broke into regular programming on Channel 9 and on Chicago's public broadcasting station. The Max Headroom signal intrusion was a television signal hijacking that happened the night of November 22, 1987 on two different television stations in Chicago within three hours of each other. The first incident took place for 25 seconds during the sportscast on the 9 p.m. news on WGN-TV Channel 9. During highlights from the Chicago Bears' 30-10 home victory over Detroit, the pirate signal took over. McMahon and McKinnon, 14-0 Bears, then the defense, which hadn't put up a sack in 12 quarters, finally did. The screen went black for nine seconds, then returned with a person wearing a Max Headroom mask and sunglasses. As a panel of corrugated metal rotated behind this character's gyrating head, the sound is nothing but static. The hijack was stopped after engineers at WGN switched the frequency of their studio link to the John Hancock Center transmitter. The news anchors, realizing that they're back on the air, try to explain to their audience what's happened. Well, if you're wondering what's happened, (laughs) so am I. Actually, the computer that we have running our news from time to time took off and went wild. So what we're going to do is start over from the top of the Bears and tell you once again about the 30-10 to victory they had over Detroit today out of Soldier Field. I should briefly mention what Max Headroom was. While there was no affiliation between this guy who hacked the TV broadcast in Chicago, he was wearing the Max Headroom mask. 
You see, Max Headroom was a 1980s fictional AI character known for his wit and electronic stuttering voice that was dreamt up by an undoubtedly coked-out television executive with a profound sense of talking heads that would dominate mainstream media for decades. And by coke, I mean Coca-Cola, as Max Headroom was at one time the spokesperson for the brand itself. This is This is what passed as cutting-edge entertainment back in the 80s before the internet, kids. Max Headroom. So this hacker, this pirate, this communications vandal, broke into WGN-TV's signal in Chicago the night of November 22nd, 1987, during the 9 p.m. news, and broadcast video of himself wearing the Max Headroom mask, with nothing but static for audio, without explanation. But the fun doesn't stop there. Later that same night, around 11.15 Central Time, during a broadcast of the Doctor Who serial horror of Fang Rock, PBS member station WTTW's signal was hijacked by the same person who had broadcast the WGN hijack just hours before, this time with distorted and crackling audio. The sound is nearly impossible to make out, mostly random nonsense. But you can hear the man say, quote, I've just made a masterpiece for all the greatest world newspaper nerds, unquote. Whatever that means. Then the character exposes his rear end as a woman off camera spanks him with a fly swatter. Clearly, we are dealing with a genius here. WTTW, which maintained its transmitter atop the Sears Tower, found that its engineers were unable to stop the hijacker due to the fact that there were no engineers on duty at the time. Technicians monitoring the transmission from WTTW headquarters attempted to take corrective measures, but couldn't. The Max Headroom incident made national headlines and was reported on the CBS Evening News the following day. Well, the FCC says last night's piracy was the first of its kind in Chicago. Another one is on tonight, this one for the video pirates who managed to scramble Chicago airwaves. The pirates interrupted WGN and WTTW programming with a show of their own. Video pirate who raided two television broadcasts last night first hit WGN. Its signal was jammed during the news in the middle of the Bears highlights. The pirate mimicked the Max Headroom character that you see on TV. Chicago television station, someone using sophisticated equipment managed to briefly and illegally override broadcast signals on WGN-TV and WTTW. Even in a medium that is no stranger to bizarre moments, these were truly bizarre. Jury Deliberations Edition tonight is trying to find out who's responsible for two acts of video piracy. Someone who really knows the business and uh, microwave in general. Last night, someone broke into regular programming here on Channel 9 and on Chicago's public broadcasting station. The FCC was upset. Take some pretty significant... Uh, equipment, technical equipment, and some knowledge of uh, broadcast uh, frequencies, uh, microwave frequencies, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of power. Law enforcement was furious. It is very serious, and uh, we'd like to uh, inform anybody who's involved in this type of thing that it is serious and that we will take every step uh, that uh, we can to uh, find out who is doing it. And once we have uh, determined that, we will make sure that uh, the full extent of the law is uh, carried out. Viewers were ready to riot. I got so upset that I wanted to bust the TV set. I really did. I just thought it would be just a slight mess up, but 
that in the middle of the tape. It's going to have to tape over it. Uh, somebody wants to get attention, what do they do? They go break into a uh, uh, television broadcast just to get attention, like throwing a brick through your window, so to speak. It's not too it's not too bright, really. But this little guy was well, he was rather amused. Very, very funny. And that perhaps is the most valid opinion on the Max Headroom signal intrusion that cold night of November twenty second, nineteen eighty seven, in Chicago. Sure, it was illegal. Sure, it probably cost time and money to investigate. And sure, it was reckless and highly immature. And whoever was responsible has yet to be brought to justice over such a blatant and crass disregard for our system of law and order. But it was kind of funny. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our This Day in History series, which, as always, is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life, including sports. And today we have a sports story for you. Sometimes we bring you stories of our nation's great leaders like George Washington. Other times, it's our greatest artists like Johnny Cash. And today it's one of our great coaches who died on this day in history in 2009, NBA Hall of Famer Chuck Daly. Chuck didn't start off like a Hall of Famer. And by the way, it goes all the way back to 1955, where he started coaching high school basketball in Pennsylvania, a town called Punxsutawney, where he coached high school basketball. And then from there on to assistant coaching positions at Duke and Boston College. And then it was at the University of Pennsylvania that Daly caught a lot of people's attention. He turned that Ivy League school into a powerhouse. He stopped coaching there in 77, but the players he recruited and trained up in 1979 made it to the Final Four, a little Ivy League team. With all those restrictions on recruiting, that academic rigor, A bunch of guys who probably couldn't ride the pine at the University of Kentucky. I mean, weren't even recruited at UCLA, and they're in the Final Four. And that was Chuck Daly's doing. And instead, Chuck was picked up by the Philadelphia 76ers, and the Cleveland Cavaliers bounced around and made his real mark in 1989 and 90 when the team he molded together, the bad boys known as the Detroit Pistons, Isaiah Thomas, Dennis Rodman, Bill Ambeer, just great basketball teams, great basketball rivalries. In 1992, he became the very first coach of the so-called Olympic Dream Team. This is the first time we ever let the professionals play. Up until then, it was college players. But in 92, my goodness. And by the way, no one else should be allowed to be called the Dream Team because Larry Bird, 
Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Carl Malone, Patrick Ewing, among many, many other giants. Imagine coaching that team and managing those personalities. And so as we often do with our great sports stories, we're getting an assist by Pat Williams, the co-founder of the Orlando Magic and the author of over 80 books on leadership. And by the way, back when Pat was the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers, he helped to hire and recruit Chuck Daly as an assistant coach, which was Chuck's first NBA job. And of course, he went from the University of Pennsylvania Well, right uptown. One of Pat's books is titled Daily Wisdom, which contains 52 of Chuck Daly's famous sayings that everyone called Chuckisms. And we also have Pat's commentary on them, too. Here's Pat Williams on one of his favorite Chuckisms. Uh, Chuckism number two, I'm not a coach, I'm a salesman. Chuck always knew his role was more about convincing people than anything else. When he joined the Magic as head coach in 1997, I was excited to be reunited with him. We were both much deeper into our careers and could talk and analyze life and sports from a much more mature point of view. Anyway, the interesting thing happened. Uh, Chuck, in his typical animated fashion, declared, I'm not a coach, I'm a salesman. What do you mean by that, Chuck, I asked. Well, all I do all day long is sell, he said. I'm selling these players on their role on the team or on the number of shots they'll take or the strategy for the next game, and then I go upstairs and start dealing with the front office. I've got to sell them on why this player isn't working out or why we should be making this trade. And every time I talk to the media, all I'm doing is selling them too. I'm selling them on the progress of the team, our game and season goals on why I did this and didn't do that in a particular game. I guess I'm selling the media, so they'll go out and sell the fans, so they'll be supportive. Sell, sell, sell. That's all I do. I've thought about that a lot, and I realized Chuck was right. When you get down to it, that's all any of us do. We're all salespeople. Kids are selling mom and dad on why they should stay up later. Young men are selling young women on why they should go out. Corporations are selling clients on why they need their latest product. With every new book deal, I'm out there selling publishers on why they should print my most recent great idea. I often chuckle when young salespeople say to me, my goal is to get out of sales so I can get into management. Buddy, I'm thinking when that day comes and you get into management then you'll really need to be a salesperson, and the stakes will be a whole lot higher. One way to learn is by studying great role models like Chuck Daly. And another Chuckism from Pat Williams. Chuckism number six, the best asset a coach has is selective hearing. Former Pistons executive Harry Hutt remembers a night toward the end of a season The players were tired and ready for play on the playoffs to start. In this particular game, the Pistons are down by 15 at the half, hut-related. Near the end of halftime, Chuck gathers the players in a huddle and is somewhat animated, lecturing them about their lack of effort and their resulting poor play. About a minute in, an angry voice let out a loud invective. I'll let you imagine it. Everybody wheels around, and it's Dennis Rodman 
visibly upset, Harry went on. Chuck kicks into selective hearing loss, continues talking, and Rodman shouts out again. Chuck ignores Rodman, continues his speech, and then gives the old one, two, three, let's go, acting like nothing happened. Somehow the selective hearing loss worked because in the second half, the Pistons rallied for a last-minute win, and Rodman was sensational. Because of Chuck's hearing loss, what could have been an unpleasant scuffle turned into another win for the Pest Pistons. He knew it wasn't personal with Dennis. He was just an intense competitor who wanted to win, and Rodman always referred to Chuck as his surrogate father. Duke University coach Mike Krzyzewski has never forgotten this advice from Chuck. To be a good NBA coach, you need to be hard of hearing and have poor eyesight. In Chuck's case, the memory, the hearing, and eyesight impairment were purely intentional. Learning the art of selective hearing saved Chuck from many an embarrassing, heated, and undoubtedly public episode. Can anyone out there relate to moments like this? Mom and Dad... Los Angeles freeway driver, leaders in board meetings. Let his Chuckism inspire you to tune out what doesn't ultimately matter and achieve your goals in creative new ways. So well said. Selective hearing loss can save friendships, marriages, and your life. And speaking of Dennis Rodman, here is Rodman himself talking about what Chuck Daly meant to him. I mean, he's like, he's like a father figure because I didn't really have anybody in Detroit. Uh, I didn't really know anybody. And uh, I was 25 years old coming from the ghetto. And um, it's very difficult to at least blast in, in, in the spotlight at such, a, at such a middle age as I was. Because a lot of kids today are coming in at 19, 20. Uh, I came in at 25 and, uh, and blossomed at literally... <laughs> At 27, 28, and a lot of guys have always been successful at that age, but uh, I was just really still getting my ears wet at the po- at the moment because I I didn't I've been anywhere you know besides you know Texas and Missouri and that was it you know stuff like that. But I never been around a country like that, and you know I got used to it very quick. And um, and the guys around me, Chuck Daly, really uh, really uh, put some intuitive things in my head. He kept me balanced. He kept me level-headed. He kept me understanding that the fact that, you know, this is a business. This is a game. Uh, enjoy yourself. Don't put yourself in position to uh, um, get influenced by certain people. And uh, he just kept telling me, Dennis, come to my house. I want you to come over here because, you know, I didn't have no family. I just listen to him all the time. Him and his wife and Terry, his daughter. Uh, we sit there at the house, you know, before you go inside, he had white carpet because, you know, you walk in his house, take your shoes off like you're in Japan. And so it's like, you know, I walk in his house, take the shoes off, okay, great. And uh, he had this old badass little chihuahua just trying to bite people. But uh, you know, I just, that's what I like about it because everything about him was very cool, man. And just, he kept everything very level-headed. Kept everything very level-headed. Rodman was never better under anybody than Chuck Daly. It was a remarkable relationship those two guys had, and the least likely mentor-mentee in world history, Chuck Daly and Dennis Rodman, the quality and nature of Chuck Daly's leadership. More on the life of Chuck Daly here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our This Day in History, celebrating the life of Chuck Daly, the Hall of Famer and basketball coach who died in 2009. He coached the high school, college, and professional level and took the Detroit Pistons and turned them into one of the great teams of all time. And we're talking with Pat Williams to hear about Chuck's leadership, his style, and the Chuckisms that he became known for. So let's go back to Pat to hear another one of those Chuckisms that apply to so much more than basketball. Chuckism number 13, we have too many meetings in basketball and they will kill you. You can talk too much. Players get tired of your voice. Chuck had an interesting philosophy about meetings. He said every time out during a game is a meeting. Every pregame discussion is a meeting. Every halftime is a meeting. Every practice session is another meeting. Players can only handle so much, and they will start tuning you out. Former Magic assistant Tom Sterner remembers a meeting one morning in New York before a game with the Knicks. We were in a conference room on the 20th floor overlooking the river. I was delivering the scouting report when Chuck, who was standing by the window, starts yelling, Hey, hey, over here, everybody to the window. The players didn't know what to think. Chuck pointed to the river and said, See that ferry? That's the one I took from New Jersey when I was coaching the Nets. That was the end of the meeting. Chuck told me later, I thought they were getting bored and needed a shake-up. They'd had enough. Well, we beat the Knicks that night, and I got a lesson from Chuck about studying people and knowing what makes them tick. Coach Eric Musselman was an assistant with the Magic when Chuck was head coach. Musselman recalls Chuck believed strongly in the importance of letting your assistants have a voice. He told me, don't call timeouts unnecessarily unless you have a serious message to deliver to the troops. They've already heard you too much. Chuck taught me a great leadership principle, said Pistons executive Dan Hauser. Sometimes the fewer words we speak, the better. Over 100-plus games, the players can get tired of your voice. Chuck would let the assistants talk during practice, during half times, and during pregame sessions. The players will turn you off if you talk ceaselessly. Then when you do talk, you have their attention. The bottom line, let others speak. There's a good lesson here for parents. Don't talk your children to death. Just like NBA players, they will tune you out, and some of your best parental speeches will end up on the locker room floor. Pick your spots wisely. Don't be afraid to let others speak into your kids' lives, teachers, coaches, pastors. It's amazing how often those voices reinforce the lessons you want your children to learn in ways they will actually get and then remember for years to come. When you do speak, make sure it's the right message at the right time. Timing is critical for maximum impact. It's true that the less said delivers the biggest wallop. Give it a try and see what happens. Oh, and about all those meetings, do you really need them? If they're taking away from productivity, maybe you don't. I'm not knocking the powwows. We all need to see each other's faces now and then and know that we're on the same page. But perhaps one or two fewer timeouts 
would suffice. And sometimes Chuck Daly let another kind of sound be the voice. When the Pistons were in trouble, sometimes Chuck Daly would call a timeout. And he would sit there, kind of wiggle his tongue around, because he kind of had this thing with his tongue, he wiggled around. He didn't say anything. And he just let guys stew. And then he said, okay, fellas, huddle up, let's go. He didn't say a word. And they would go out and just take care of business. Really smart. Don't say anything. Really smart. The power of saying nothing. Here again is Pat Williams with a final Chuckism for this story. And by the way, Pat, again, the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, the first guy who gave Chuck Daly his first professional job. If you want more, get Pat's book, Daily Wisdom. Let's take a listen. Chuckism number 48, what are you doing? Broadcaster Jim Gray was Chuck's close friend and has an endless supply of stories about traveling together and hearing Chuck ask this startling question. If I turned a street too soon, Jim recalls, Chuck would say, what are you doing? At a restaurant, if I ordered incorrectly, it was, what are you doing? It's the kind of question that definitely gets your attention. One weekend when Chuck was head coach for the Magic, we were all flying to New York for the NBA All-Star Weekend. My wife Ruth came along, too, to enjoy time with me at all the gala events. As usual, I had a pile of books with me and read the entire weekend, including during the game. I didn't realize Chuck was watching. But in retrospect, I'm glad he was. In an opportune moment, he pulled me aside. What are you doing, Chuck asked. Do you realize you haven't spoken a word to your wife this entire trip? All you've done is read those books. You'd better watch it. When I told Ruth what he said, her response was, Thank goodness for Chuck Daly. Is there a Chuck Daly in your life? He could be your best friend, your life mate, your spiritual partner, your mom or dad, or a mentor, but we all need someone who will whip our heads around at just the right moment with that question. What are you doing? So pay attention. Chuck's question might just be the wake-up call you need to get your life in order. What a great story. And let's close out with another legendary NBA coach. And this guy knows a thing or two about leading men and leading athletes. And it's Pat Riley, remembering his arch rival. I mean, there was no bigger rivalry than the Lakers and the Pistons. Pat Riley, remembering Chuck Daly. And I remember I took one thing from, from that program, and it's his favorite Irish prayer. And I say it all the time, and probably some of you have already heard me read this, but, you know, for Chuck, may the road rise up to meet you. You know, may the wind be always at your back. You know, may the sun shine warmly down upon your face and the rain fall softly on your fields. And until we meet him again... Uh, God will surely hold you and your family in the palm of his hand. I've been carrying this card ever since his funeral. I give it away to people. And, uh, and so I'll never forget Chuck Daly. And that's something when a guy influences and moves you that much that you keep a bunch of cards on you and hand them out to random strangers and you yourself are in the Hall of Fame and one of the great coaches of all time. And I think it had to do with Chuck's wisdom. 
and not his coaching. And I think that's what you'll learn when you read Pat's book. And by the way, do get the book um, because you'll love it. Again, it's called Daily Wisdom, D-A-L-Y Wisdom, and you can get it at Amazon.com as you can get so much of Pat's work. What I really loved about Chuck Daly, I'll never forget, someone had asked him who was the best offensive coach you ever, ever coached, and he said Dennis Rodman. And people went, well, what are you talking about? The guy doesn't score much. Um, How could that be? And he goes, well, he gets all the rebounds, so that frees up my guards to run. He doesn't shoot, so it frees up my guards to shoot. He sets picks, which frees my guards to shoot. And the only time he shoots is when he grabs an offensive rebound and then puts it in the hole, and it's a dunk. And so when he was scoring his 12 or 14 points a game, he was taking no shots. He was taking second shots he created. He was creating more shots for the rest of the team. He was taking care of the defense. He was rebounding every rebound so Isaiah Thomas could go off on the fast break. In other words, he's the greatest offensive player I ever coached. And what an insight into thinking about thinking about life, the assets you have before you, and how to think about things outside the box. He really was an outside-the-box thinker, a great coach, a great man. Chuck Daly died on this day in history. As always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to their website, hillsdale.edu, to hear their great free online courses. This is Our American Stories, Chuck Daly's story. And we're back with Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of stories about families on this show. And today, we bring you some stories from Mark Oppenheimer, whose piece in the Wall Street Journal really caught our attention. It's titled, Yes, We Really Do Want to Have a Fifth Child. Mark, a few generations ago, a family having four or more kids would have been nothing remarkable. But now, that's increasingly rare. As you wrote, quote, In 1976, 40% of mothers aged 40 to 44 had four or more children. Today, only 13% do. And when it comes to mothers with graduate degrees, like your wife, only 8%. Talk a little about how you and your bride decided that you wanted a big family. When we first met, before we were even dating, My wife and I were talking one time, and it came up just naturally that I thought four would be a nice number of children to have. And and I'm one of four children. I'm the eldest of four children in the family that I come from. So that always seemed perfectly normal. And then my wife, who's one of two, said, oh, yeah, I always thought my family seemed a little small. I thought it'd be nice if there were three or four of us. So we both had a sense that four was a, a nice number of children to have. And we were very lucky, and we we had four children in the first 10 years uh, of our marriage. Actually, I guess we had four children in the first eight years of our marriage. And then um, a couple years ago, we were talking, and I forget who said it first, but one of us said, wouldn't it be fun to have one more? And the other one said, yeah, that'd be fun. And so then we did. And I think it was not something that we interrogated too deeply. It was not, we didn't go and check our bank account. We knew that we would be as... um, as, as impoverished 
with five, we would be, we would be, it, it, you know, either way, we weren't taking fancy vacations with four kids or five. It, you know, once you're up to four kids and, and you're on the salary of a, of a writer, uh, and, and, uh, you know, my wife is, is mostly a homemaker, though she's a lawyer by training. You know, we're not wealthy people. We don't have regular paid child care. But if you're going to be home with four, you might as well be home with five, and it's one more person to love. So, I don't have a, I don't have any profound thoughts on it except we did what we wanted to do and it's a free country so we we were able to do that. Indeed. And and by the way you note in the piece we are not conservative traditionalists, not orthodox Jews, old school Catholics or Mormons, nor nope. are we lefty counterculturalists. We have no aversion to birth control, chemical or otherwise. We're pretty basic middle class HBO watchers. My idea of living on the edge is refusing to give up soda. So so talk about the becauses. One of them that was interesting, you brought up your Jewishness. Talk about that, because I think that's important. I've had conversations with my Jewish friends who said, you know, hey, we're just, we're, we're shrinking in numbers. There's debate about Jewish numbers. Uh, there's debate about demography. What is certainly true is that the community of Jews who are not Orthodox or what they call ultra-Orthodox Jews is shrinking. The number of Jews who are Reform or Conservative Jews uh, by denomination is uh, pretty precarious and is is probably crashing over the next couple of generations. And I do think that for for Jewry to be a robust uh, community, a robust and diverse community that's not all based in a couple smaller sects, it's auspicious if there are you know lots of babies in all of those communities. I wouldn't say that's why we had a fifth child, but right. I take I take some pleasure in the fact. I mean, I, it, it cheers me that there is at least one family, and we do know of others, for whom this is a real choice, you know, irrespective of some commandment from God not to use birth control, which is not who we are culturally or religiously. This, this for many families, is a delightful way to live, and that the, the community, and, and in our case, we have a lot of identities, Jewish is one, and, you know, American is another, but, but speaking of the Jewish community, that it's, um, that it's good for the community to have families of different sizes. But we certainly have plenty of people modeling not having children or having only one or two. And I think it's great if there are models of people having four or five. Indeed. And I think there are some parts of this country where you start walking around and pushing five, six kids, you're going to get some really weird glances. And, and by, by virtue of the opposite, there are some communities in this country where if you're married and you have no kids, you'll get some weird looks. And there were a bunch of other becauses, and this is the answer to why did you have a fifth child? And I'm going to go through a few of them, and I'd love sure. to have you comment. Because every one of our four children has improved my life. Talk about that. Well, that's true. I think that anyone who has any number of children, if, if it's a relatively normally happy family, which means happy sometimes and other times in conflict or fighting or you know having the normal struggles people have. But if you're a relatively normal family, one of the things that's true about having even one child is once the child comes along, within a few weeks or months, you can't imagine your life before that child. They become part of what you're grateful for when you think of your own existence. And for us, and I think for all people who have multiple children, that's as true of the second and third and fourth as it is of the first. I don't think that anyone wants to trade in any one of their children or give back any one of their children. I mean, sometimes you do. Right, sometimes. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> sometimes I can tell you, I, you know, I'll send this one away and, you know, at those times, it's, that's what grandma and grandpa's house is for. You know, there is a kind of logic to the fact that whatever the next child you have is, you will love that child as much as you loved the last one. And so there is a kind of drive to have more, I think. Another because. Because with a big family, I never have to feel guilty about the clutter. <laughs> I, for, 
forgot I wrote that. Yeah. That's true. I mean, I'm not a super neat and tidy person. And if I had no children, I'd have a lot of clutter, but then I'd be a little bit ashamed of it. <laughs> but with five children, everyone says, oh, of course, you know, how, how could you have a neat house? So it does, it does let you off the hook for some things. I mean, uh, you know, another example of that is if you have one child, you might feel, well, I have to save enough to send this child to college. When you have five children, there's no prayer that I can afford to send them all to college without a lot of financial aid. So there are ways in which taking on more can be liberating. Indeed. And you also wrote this, because I'm scared of being alone. Absolutely. I mean, I, and I think most parents, if they're being honest, would say that that's part of why we, we grow our families, whether it's just from one person to two, if you're a single person who has a child or adopts a child, or if it's a couple that has one, all the way up to having eight or nine or ten children, I do think that children are, are hedges against against loneliness. And um, and I'm someone who tends toward loneliness. I'm actually not a great um, I'm not great at being at at solitude. Uh, some people are. I'm not. I like having people around, and it, it's reassuring to me. So having children around is is very comforting. I mean, they are they are. They're children, but they're also companions and friends and, and comforters, and I think that's really nice. Because my 11-year-old likes poker, and for that, she needs more players. <laughs> well, that's, and that is true. We've trained up the 10-year-old. Our 8-year-old is not really into poker yet, so we have two more, Anna, who's five, and then the, the new boy. We'll get, we'll get him there when he's three or four. But if we could have a good five- or six-person you know, hold'em game with just our family, that would be a huge win. Yeah, and you're going to have to teach me on this because my 13-year-old is a fearless Hold'em player because he's always playing with my money. Well, we, you got to play with chips. I mean, you don't, don't actually, you know, when he's ready to play with money, you send him out into high school to earn some money. Indeed. Okay, a couple of more becauses. Because when I think of those countries where birth rates are so low that nobody has siblings anymore, I get sad. I do. I do. I think, that's, I think siblinghood is, is wonderful. I was really lucky... I am really lucky to have three siblings, and, um, and it's hard to imagine life without them. They are the people who know you best. They're the only people who know what it is to grow up in your household with your parents, your grandparents, and that's a very special relationship. And I, do, I don't believe that – I don't believe what some of my only children friends tell me, which is, oh, well, cousins make up the difference or close friends make up the difference. I don't think it's the same. Absolutely. and Because not being inclined to rock climbing – Microdosing or day trading, I need something a little risky. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I would say that I, many of my friends have that thing that they do that sets them apart a little bit, especially as we get middle-aged and boring in lots of other ways. And, uh, you know, whether it's some sort of mildly extreme sport or whether it's, you know, gambling, which is not something I do, again, outside of the family uh, poker table. And, uh, but, you know, having a fifth kid, strikes people as, as, uh, as a little bit edgy. So I'm, I'm happy to... <laughs> I've got to do something that raises people's eyebrows, right? I, mean, I, don't, I don't wear weird bow ties. So right. <laughs> what am I going to do? What are you going to do? And this could be the best of all of them, I think, because having children has made our marriage stronger. Well, that's true. And I, I you know, how could... I guess there are marriages that are weakened by children. I mean, in our case, in a very kind of prosaic, obvious way... It gives us even more common ground, even more things that we uh, that only we understand about each other, which is to say, being the parent of this child or this one or this one or this one or this one. Um, and look, let's be frank, it's really hard to split up if you're together supporting five kids or even one kid. I mean, I think that I think 
marriages without children are more likely um, to fail because there's less of a common project and it's easier to separate. Um, that doesn't mean people should have children to, to stay together. I, don't, I think that would be a, a false inference. But, um, but certainly in our case, we feel more unified and like we have more to, that we can only do in the world together because we have children. Well, there's more ties that bind in the end. I mean, infinitely more ties that bind uh, with more kids. Because I'm going to weep like a baby when I drop my youngest daughter for her first day of kindergarten, and it will help if I know it's not my last first day of kindergarten. Well, that's true. I'm very sappy. So <laughs> every every milestone pretty much destroys me. So as I need, I need more milestones coming down the pike. And now, you know, I'm 44, and my son was just born. So... You know, I'll be 62 before we're empty nesters. So by then, maybe I'll be a little bit hardened and uh, and cynical and able to take it a little bit more, but uh, but not yet. Well, we want to thank you, Mark, for joining us. Mark's the author of the Wall Street Journal essay. Yes, we really do want to have a fifth child. Mark has a PhD in religious studies at Yale. His wife is a lawyer. He's been writing well about all kinds of things for places like the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, and Atlantic. Mark Oppenheimer's story, his family's story, here on Our American Stories.